I want kids, but I don't till I'm rich. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I'm going to tell you, there's never a good time to have children. You're never ready. You're never financially prepared. You are never emotionally prepared. You are just never ready to be a parent. Like that first kid is like an absolute life culture shock. It is you having to redefine everything in your life. You have to redefine your 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 priorities. You have to redefine like who you are as a person in context of this other little being. Um you're never, you're never ready. Like even when you feel ready, you're not ready. You, you just, you just don't really know what you're getting into until you're fucking balls deep. And then you're like, ah, oh, shit, they don't come with a user manual. So every kid is super different. And like what worked well when I was raising Cirrusol would not necessarily work well with another child. So yeah, it, it's just interesting. Hello, only a turtle mom if had a place big enough to give them an appropriate sized enclosure. Yeah, like I said, if, if you could, I would totally get a shark if I could. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, how hard would it be to, like, take care of a shark? Like, could, would you just have, like, a pool in your backyard? I don't even know how much space they need. It really does. I found out that EDS was the issue before I was even 18. And I know that mine is genetic. My mom and sister also have it. My partner also has health issues. And I worry about that a lot. I mean, it adds a, a whole nother layer of complexity in the decision making and when i was diagnosed with ehlers-danlos my first fear and my first thought was what what about cirrusalk and yeah there was a lot of anxiety of knowing that because the hypermobile type doesn't have a genetic test i couldn't just take her into the doctor and get her tested for it um we had to just wait and see and that sucks so much I mean, she was old enough that we could say fairly confidently, probably not. But yeah. Why don't they come with a manual? No way. I ain't doing it then. <laughs> it would be really nice if like every person came with a user manual. I'd get a black cat to go with my vibe, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, black cat seems like it would go with your emo vibe. Dr. Spock's baby manual. Wow. Yeah, you definitely dated yourself there, Torlock. And um, Dr. Spock was full of bullshit the thing about like all of those like children's stuff is that they assume a lot of things they assume like a lot of cultural preferences and they assume that your kid is an is is um neurotypical and yeah like the reality is is that the being neurotypical is the minority when you look at all of the people who have some type of neurodivergence and some type of different way of thinking, we far outnumber those who are neurotypical. Sharks need more than a pool pig. I don't know how much space, but I bet it is more than that. I mean, like a really, really big pool, right? Like ginormous pool. I have a black and white cat, but I want a black cat so I can name it Midnight. I mean, you can name a black and white cat Midnight and you know, there's nothing that says you can't. And don't get me started on cultural assumptions. We didn't have children, but the kid would have been having to balance between two cultures and races. Yeah. Um, Miss Arch and I are both from America and our cultures are pretty much shared 
But I found that the challenge that we had was that I am neurodivergent. And while the majority of the time that we were raising Sarah Salk, we didn't know that I had ADHD and we didn't know that I had autism. So a lot of our challenges came with the differences in our communication and in the differences in the way that we perceived the world and not knowing that there was this difference between us. So there was definitely a cultural difference. And it is it is difficult because I think that what people don't appreciate is that parents are always coming from different cultures. I mean, okay, not always, but pretty much. I mean, you're usually coming from different family backgrounds. You're often coming from different political and religious view sets that your family shared. Um, oftentimes you're coming from different states. Sometimes you're coming from um, different countries. Sometimes it's different religions. I mean, it's just... There's always going to be different assumptions and different foundation of cultural norms. And we found that while we intellectually agreed on the principles of how to raise a child, we found that the things that we experienced in our childhood definitely clouded and complicated things. And yeah, and it was very different for him and me what, what came up and when it came up. Yeah, you can never be prepared to be a, a parent. I completely agree with that, Daydreamer. Like we, and I don't think that you're ever prepared for your second kid, um, because your second kid is never your first kid. And too many parents assume that your first child like taught you everything you needed to know about parenting. But what inevitably happens is that you have a different person. Like you're not going to have a photocopy of your first child, and so inevitably. What happens is that that second child brings forth a whole different set of challenges to your parenting style. And while you now do have an established parenting style because you have this first kid that taught you what your parenting style is, it has to be applied in a different way to be useful and helpful and nurturing to that second person. Um, and I don't think that, especially in American culture, that we acknowledge the individuality of our children enough. Like each child, each human being is an individual and has distinctly unique different needs. Like what's going to work for person one is not going to work for person two. And it's no different with our children. And I will say that a lot of my parenting opinions, I mean, definitely come from, from having raised a child. But... I've expanded on my parenting opinions from having worked with children in the medical field. And the children that I worked with were all diagnosed with some type of mental health diagnosis because I worked in um, pediatric psych. And it taught me a lot about how individual human beings need different things in their environment to grow well and to thrive and to be healthy and to be okay and to just feel safe. Like when you look at, you know, a child with ADHD and you look at a neurotypical child and you look at a child who has bipolar and you look at a child who, you know, has experienced trauma, you know, all of these, these kiddos have distinctly different needs just for the basic sense of feeling safe, which is essential. It's that bottom layer in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in order for us to be able to do anything else and progress anywhere else. 
else. So just meeting that basic fundamental need is inherently different with every person. I'm curious to how I can get my relationship back with my sisters because I rarely do anything with them because I'm always in my room, but I want to do something with them so that they know that I haven't forgotten about them. Well, emo, um, relationships are built on time. So if you want to build a relationship with someone, you have to make the commitment to spend time with them. That is the only way that you can build a relationship. You have to spend time. You, you can't do it without that commitment. So my first piece of advice would be to start committing to spend time with these people that you want to build a relationship with. And that can be in person, online, whatever is most comfortable with you to start. Um, but scheduling time, I think, is a better way of helping people commit to doing it. When we say, I should do this thing, it generally tends to be so vague that we don't feel committed. So when our anxiety kicks in, we just go, eh, I'll do it tomorrow instead. Um, versus when we take the leap and schedule the time and make that commitment and say, hey, I'm going to spend this time with you. It's a lot harder to let our anxiety like ease us out of it. So that's my advice is to make the commitment to spend the time and to remember that a relationship takes two people so you can throw the ball in their court, but it is always up to them whether or not they pick up that ball and throw it back to you. Um, and we have to accept when we are making a gesture to try to create a relationship that they might not reciprocate, that they might not want to spend that time and that they might not want to develop the relationship in the same way that we want to. And it's a risk that we have to be willing to take. But the alternative is to live in isolation and to live in loneliness. And research has shown that the single most defining thing in a person's life that will um, generate a sense of contentment and a generate a sense of wellness is having relationships with other human beings. So not taking that risk guarantees that you will live in a life of isolation and sadness. Taking the risk of fostering relationships gives you the chance to build a relationship that will give you that sense of happiness and contentment in life. Because that is the single most important thing about being human is having human connections. It is the single most protective factor for our mental health. It is the single most um, predictive factor in the outcomes for our physical wellness. It will determine whether or not we will have a sense of well-being and happiness more than where we live, whether or not we're married, what our job is, what our finances is. It really is the single most important thing in our lives is nurturing relationships. So I can't stress to you enough, Emo, that I think that it's worth investing the time and taking the risk. That's my spiel. <laughs> because people are everything. People are absolutely everything. Do I think that free healthcare would solve problems? Um, even the U.S. would never have it, to be honest. Okay, so do I think that free healthcare would solve problems? Absolutely. Um, I think that 
it isn't precluded from the possibility of the U.S. I think that we are seeing a major shift in ideology and um, political typology in our country as the baby boomers die out and the younger generations are rising up. We are seeing a major political shift in that political typology, which means that it absolutely opens the door for there being radical social change and radical political change in this country as we see that major shift. So I'm not going to preclude it from the possibility. Um, and do I think that it would solve problems? Absolutely. United States is the largest per capita spender in the world on healthcare, And yet in the majority of healthcare metrics, we are either the worst or really close to the worst when it comes to meeting um, health metric indicators like infant mortality, um, the life expectancy, um, obesity, um, all of those things, those metrics that tells you that your healthcare is performing well, America performs very poorly, even though we spend more money than everyone else. And one of the countries that spends the least is Japan. They spend half of the amount of money per capita that the United States spends, and they have the highest um, life expectancy in the world, and they have the best infant mortality rates in the world. So throwing dollars at our healthcare is not the answer. Um, and no, it would not result in higher taxes because we could actually spend less if we were not for profit, because right now, the majority of the money that is spent on healthcare legit goes into a corporate CEO's pocket. It is a profit system. It is not interested in um, outcomes. It's interested in generating dollars for the people who own the corporate hospital, you know, or, or um, healthcare facility. So... You could actually spend less money and therefore not increase taxes. And because instead of paying that money into our health insurance, we would be paying that money into a national health program. And we could spend less on our health care and have improved medical metrics. That's what the models in other countries has consistently demonstrated with national healthcare systems. Are national healthcare systems without problems? No. Like, let's not be delusional. It's not going to solve every healthcare problem that is faced in the healthcare system. We're still going to have trouble with there not being enough healthcare providers. That's a worldwide problem. There is a shortage in doctors and nurses in the whole world. That, that problem isn't going to be solved by going into a national healthcare system. It's not going to solve the reality for the need of triage. There's always going to be more people that need healthcare than there are the resources to provide that healthcare. That is a triage reality that is not going to be solved and eliminated because we go to a national healthcare system. What it will do is make sure that when we are triaging healthcare, it will go into an equitable uh, framework of triage. So rather than saying whoever has the money to spend gets the health care, we will look at who, based on the medical ethical principles of triage, who should be getting that health care because they're statistically most likely to benefit, statistically most likely to survive the care. So I will say that 
um, absolutely national health care has been proven in country after country after country after country to far outperform both financially and in quality of life health metric indexes to by far outperform the American for-profit system. So we could spend half the money and set up a healthcare system that increased our life expectancy by about a decade because that's what Japan has done. As a dual citizen, uh, U.S. and Canada, socialized healthcare removes a constant source of fear and worry that I felt in the U.S. My taxes are about the same in Canada when compared to the U.S. Exactly. It's all about the reality that there is money currently in a for-profit system that, A, the majority of the money that we spend goes into profit. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you have a national healthcare system, you are not marketing. Hospitals are no longer competing. Hospital A and Hospital B right now in a for-profit system are competing to get patients. So they're spending money to market and to advertise their services because they are competitively competing against each other in order to get the most money. In a nationalized healthcare system, they are all on the same team. And you go to the hospital based on to which hospital can provide you the best need. Uh, you know, meet your needs the best. And it eliminates the need to spend money on advertisement. So that's, again, a huge chunk of our money that we wouldn't have to be spending in our healthcare system. I think that the food that Americans consumes result in early death. Our food has so many chemicals and bad things in them, and the American diet is horrible. Um, yes, overall, statistically speaking, Americans have an absolutely horrendous diet. We are the highest consumer of high fructose corn syrup, which is probably why we have such a crappy obesity metric. Um, we also have one of the highest salt consumptions in the world. Yeah, we... we we perform very terribly on our nutritional metrics when we compare ourselves to other countries in the world. Um, we have more people starving in this country when you compare it to other countries of equivalent wealth. Um, yeah, nutritionally, we, we fail horrendously. And nutrition is absolutely a big factor in our overall health and wellness metrics. But it is far from the only piece that goes into why we perform so poorly on our quality of life health indicating metrics. Um, some socialized medicine programs are under attack from people cutting funds in order to make them perform poorly and attempt to introduce private health care. Um, yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that Healthcare has the potential to be an insanely profitable market, and America has proved that. So there is a lot of pressure in nationalized healthcare countries by the corporate world to corporatize healthcare because it's billions and billions of dollars of profit. The average CEO in the United States, the average CEO of a hospital, it's like one and a half billion dollars of profit a year that that one individual takes home. So yeah, corporate, um, you know, the corporatization of, of healthcare is definitely something that business wants to see happen and that businesses are absolutely going to put pressure on nationalized healthcare programs to allow for a uh, privatization and a marketization of healthcare. But 
What America has also proven is that for-profit healthcare is fucking abysmal and does not serve the people. America must do like in France, it's called Securité Sociale. I'm not, I'm not sure what is that. Uh, medicine is free for se or 75% for everyone in France. So again, it's one of the national healthcare systems. And I'm not, I'm not super familiar with the specifics of the France uh, system. Um, but the majority of other countries have gone to a national healthcare system because it works better. But if taxes do not get raised, where does the free health care come from? Okay, so Carson, right now in the United States, everyone is paying health care insurance money instead of, I mean, so in a way, yes, taxes get raised, but we as an individual aren't going to pay more money. So instead of paying into a private health care insurance, you pay into a national health care fund. That is basically medical insurance for everyone that has guaranteed um, services for everyone. Um, so unlike private health care insurance that's interested in not giving you care, national health care system is governmentally controlled and has to follow metrics. So by removing private insurances, from the game entirely, everyone who's spending three, four, five, eight hundred dollars on their healthcare insurance is now going to pay a smaller amount into the national healthcare fund, and that smaller amount will go farther towards providing good, high-quality healthcare because we're not paying for profit and we're not paying for uh, advertisement of those companies. So you don't have to spend in as much to get more um, bang for your buck, so to speak. So in a way, yes, taxes are would be raised because it would go to the government. So yes, but individuals would be paying less money every year because they wouldn't be paying as much towards their health care fund. And on top of that, they wouldn't have private bills. There wouldn't be a portion, a ridiculously like thousands of dollars that isn't being paid by the national health care system. So you wouldn't be getting hit twice by the same thing. You wouldn't be paying a, a monthly fee for your health care and being billed for it which is what we currently do in the United States and it's fucking insanity. Exceptional excess of salt and sugars and ridiculous malnutrition despite that. Yep, absolutely. That is the state of the healthcare in, I mean, the uh, nutrition in America. It's horrendous. In France, we have our annual taxes like always and we can have our free healthcare for the poorest people in the country. Yeah, absolutely. It covers everyone. The money doesn't go into the pockets of the shareholders. It goes directly into the healthcare. Exactly. That's that's how a national healthcare system works. Nobody cares about the people. Record profits for all insurance companies the last two years is absolutely unsustainable. Yes, Jag, welcome to the dazzle. And you are absolutely true. So even during the time of the pandemic, you know, when people are dying by the fucking millions, Health insurances and hospitals were making more profit than they had in previous years because they weren't interested in saving people's lives from the from COVID. They, they didn't give a shit if you died. What they cared about was whether or not that they were making good money. And yeah, so when they were given these these 
these relief monies, most of that went into profit. They didn't use it to improve the health care that people were receiving. Oh, we'd cut the insurance bill and you pay taxes for the free health care. Yeah, exactly. It's just shifting who you're giving that money to and that bill would be smaller. Canada is lagging on socialized prescription and dental care, but I paid zero for my gallbladder and hernia operation. Money was never discussed. Can you fucking imagine going in to have a life-saving surgery and never once having to worry about how you're going to pay for it? Because I can't imagine that. I, someone who has chronic illness, who is chronically partaking of the healthcare system, I, I constantly have to ask, am I going to get enough benefit from this thing to justify the cost that I'm inevitably going to pay. So when my pot symptoms get really bad and I have to go to a ER or a um, express care kind of service to get an IV to improve my symptoms, I have to ask, are my symptoms bad enough to justify the several hundred dollar bill that I'm going to get after my insurance is paid for its portion of my health care. It's fucking insane. I ended up working customer service for a private health care insurance line, and some people are paying almost $1,000 a month and still having a lot of stuff that isn't covered. It's absolutely insane. They are looking for reasons to deny you coverage because they want to make profit. So any way that they can justify legally telling you no, they're not going to cover it, they're going to. That's not a thing in national healthcare. It's either you do these metrics and it's it's covered. Like you have these flow sheets that tell you that this person comes in with these things, you do these things for them. And then if that doesn't work, you do these things for them. If that doesn't work, you do these things for them. You follow the program and that program is fucking paid for. And here, because they're not interested in saving lives, we have a lot of people who are discharged and then who go home and die. It is very common in the United States to go in for a screening of a stroke, actually have your imaging done too soon to see that the stroke has happened, go home, continue to progress through your stroke, and either die from the stroke because it's hemorrhagic, or progress through the symptomology so severely that it is irreversible. And that is less likely to happen in other countries where there's this metric that says, oh, no, 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 they have to stay four to six hours and get a second scan. That's not a thing in the United States because there isn't profit in doing it that way. So they don't. They don't give a shit if you're actually having a stroke. What they care about is are you giving them money?